Health insurance making a country sick. Yeah, in my random thoughts from a therapist podcast today, I thought I'd look a little bit closer at health insurance. As a healthcare provider, that makes some sense. And before you assume that I'm making some political statement, please know that I'm not. Oh, sure. If you listen to my other podcasts about the Mueller report, matters of faith, and how pride can benefit a nation, I'm sure you're thinking that I have a political direction I'm moving in. It could be, as my random thoughts are triggered by current events, that maybe these podcasts are emerging. But that's just one consideration. It could be, too, that current events may be able to benefit from a little bit of an alternative thought. You know, like critical thinking and some takes that are kind of outside of the box. You know, away from the taking sides paradigms. Why? Well, one of my other podcasts talks about the idea of a double bind. That in the good and bad paradigms, well, there could be some dysfunction. Don't forget, there was also a Father's Day podcast not too long ago as well. Either way, as a healthcare provider who once took health insurance, I interacted with many as 18 to 20 different payers at local, state, and even federal levels, both public and private. I speak about it with a little bit of experience. In the years of doing so, not only uh, did I work with many different companies, uh, public and private, I didn't have a single instance with any of them where I would say that the overall experience went well in regards to getting paid. Sure, some went better than others. Some went amazingly well compared to others. But none went well insofar as how people get paid for doing their jobs. And this is a side of the healthcare debate many don't know about and most don't even care about. Why? Because the arguments appear to be about healthcare when in fact, I'm sure, there's an issue with money. At one point in my office, I had a full-time employee. I had a contracted insurance billing specialist who did nothing but insurance billing for a living. And myself, were spending 2.87 hours, that's almost three hours per every insurance hour billed, in order to fix claims, find missing money, respond to denials and rejections, recoupments, numbers changes, coding changes, and policy changes, and even payments by the members themselves changes. At that point, I moved away from taking insurance so that I could focus on improving care for clients. Now, I can gamble with a high degree of certainty that 100% of all medical providers in the United States from all medical disciplines who bill and accept third-party payments, public and private, can agree that their insurance collections and payment and compliance processes are nothing less than a nightmare. Can you imagine that? Every provider and every payer Universities, hospitals, large group practices, all of these have created billing specialists and billing departments just to navigate what I will call the health insurance debacle. Navigate? Isn't that interesting? If 100% of all payers and 100% of all medical providers have problems in dealing with payments, systemically there's either a flaw or there is an incentive involved in creating so much work. Well, flat out delaying payments. The incentive, well, it's employment, maybe. It's creating other industries, maybe. 
The incentive, as I mentioned earlier, I think is just plain old money. Look, I hear tidbits of the arguments over the pros and cons of health care, and to be clear from all sides who are positioning themselves for the answer, no one's talking about the very fact that all payers delay payment. All payers, and even the best ones, have intermittent bumps along the way that impact and create hours and hours of work for providers and their staff members who are being employed and hired to affect health care. Not long ago, a year after not taking in-network payments, a process that for me to get out of took over four years because getting away from 18 different payers, complying with laws, complying with contract terms, complying with ethics, and coordinating with patients themselves about what worked best for them, it was a long process to leave the payer networks. But a year later, I had, got, I had not seen a patient in over a year and three deposits just appear into my bank. Three of them, $1.55, $1.55, and then another one for $3.10. Now, it took some time to figure out the $6.20 that was well over a year after having seen patients and definitely within a year after having left the network. Turned out it was for three different clients, four different sessions. Now, Looking back and looking at my payment processes, these claims were satisfied to my satisfaction. They were regulated in many forms with allowables and what was maximum collectible for what procedure and what timeline, all resolved, and in my view, these were overpayments. I could have picked up the phone, I could have faxed, I could have done a number of things after logging into two or three different websites to figure out where this $1.55, $1.55, and $3.10 really belonged, whether it needed to be refunded, which meant issuing checks, refunded to either the insurance company or the client. In many cases, it's not allowed to be given back to the client. Hours is what I'm talking about. I think you get the point. You may ask, what is any of this? have to do with health insurance or health care. Well, in my view, it makes for very unhealthy, unhappy, and definitely overburdened and stressed health care providers. Now, you may say, oh, they're getting rich. Well, let's just look at the pay for a minute. Imagine if as you went about your work day, every single day doing the job that you love to do, and you weren't able to predict with any certainty what you were getting paid, when you were getting paid, if the payment was going to be recouped or later deemed to be problematic, and if you could know that you were going to have to put in as many as three extra hours to sort out what the paychecks and paycheck problems would be, and maybe even hire somebody to go to work with you every day to work it out. Now, how would that be as your job? If you were trapped in that cycle, and many providers are, it may be affecting performance. Sure, they can just hire people to take care of that, and those expenses are deductible. Now let's look at this idea for a moment. Paying others to get paid doesn't have anything to do with the jobs for which a provider is paid. Point one. Imagine if, again, in your day, you had so many problems getting paid that you had to bring a person that you paid in order to sort out your pay etc, etc. Next, this idea of it's deductible is great. You'll have to check with an accountant, and it's somewhat true, but most business expenses are not a deductible dollar for dollar. It's not like every dollar the business spends to affect payment, by the way, payment that was already promised, is deductible as a full dollar. It's often pennies on the dollar. 
Now, if your statement is it's just business, well, it's actually healthcare I'm talking about, not business. So it's not only a provider's business, it's yours too. And by the way, providers receive healthcare too. Well, they should receive healthcare. With the advent of nationalized healthcare, many people were moved to the roles of subsidized plans and therefore experienced first-time coverage. Many problems showed up there, but it seems cool enough. What happens here from the provider side, though, is that a client pays the share of the premium while the subsidy is paid by the feds. And if the client defaults on their share, by law, a payer cannot just stop paying the provider, at least for up to 60 or 90 days after the default. So it allows the client to catch up, if you will, or maybe to finish the care that they need, but certainly not to harm them. But if the client does not catch up, the payer can recoup the money that they previously paid to the provider 60 to 90 days later. Now, isn't that something? Look, I was able to use digital fund printing one time to prove to a billionaire health insurance company whose name is intentionally omitted a fact that they had received a claim that they say they didn't. Between my client and I, we could establish that session one was paid. The identical session a week later was uh, identified as they were a non-member. And then the third week, the same thing was paid. When I called, they said they didn't get the claim. I could verify digitally that it was not only accepted and approved as received by them and meeting their standards. After several phone calls and a few hours on the phone, the claims agent finally came back to an odd scenario and he said it appeared to be what he called a phantom claim. At this point, I'd been dealing with insurance companies, I don't know, seven or eight years. I'd heard just about everything. I think my jaw dropped. I hope I didn't cuss, but I asked, a phantom claim? Now, what is that and how can that be? He simply said he had just made it up and it's the best explanation he could give. And... Now I was on notice that I could wait 30 days to see what happens for this claim. And at that time, if it wasn't to my satisfaction, I could recontact them. Isn't that something else? Look, I have a million of these stories. In one scenario, I filed complaints with a state agency and was later threatened by an attorney to cease and desist because the party to whom I complained was their client. In another scenario, a client was so outraged that they contacted a center who contacted agencies involved in the payments. And yeah, it was cleared up. This goes on and on. Can you imagine? Look, I hope you listen and consider what I'm saying. I know this is a charged topic. I know that it looks like providers of healthcare are overpaid. But first, you have to consider that 30% of every dollar they make goes to taxes. Next is if every healthcare has to have a if every healthcare provider has to have a team to deal with payer shenanigans, there the income drops some more. And I'll get to this overpayment issue in a minute. Add hours of time that providers spend to be involved and correct supposed problems with changing co-pays, co-insurances, deductibles, and changing plans and delays of payment. It's not all that it's cracked up to be, to be sure. Increasingly, providers are dropping out of the third-party payer business, and you can search this on any search engine, and you'll see that it's happening everywhere because it's becoming its own business, and it's too much. Has anyone considered that statistic again? 100% of every medical provider of every medical discipline who accepts 100% of third-party payments deals with delays of some kind or another. 
I'm not a mathematician, but somebody can tell you what that means in actual costs and dollars. Here I'm trying to make the point that it has other costs, that it's on the health of the healthcare providers, which affects the health of patients related to money. Look, this argument over healthcare in the national platforms where the hate is being spewed about bad of this side and bad of the other side, as if that will help us all in any way, is hurting us too. We're not really arguing about healthcare. I wrote about this a long time ago in one of my Facebook posts. It's really about bank care. Look, we need banks. Banks are going to be a part of payments for as long as we're around. I'm not talking about the bad of banks. I'm talking about health insurance companies as actual banks. Look, long before it was even discussed as a court case, which I understand is current in the media as well right now, I wrote in my Facebook post about the idea that healthcare as a nationalized system didn't get approved on the principle of healthcare. It got passed, if you will, in a court battle over taxes. Now notice that I mentioned bank care instead of health care, and health care as a debate that went to a legal battle, settled as a cause of taxes. Again, even the best of plans, so far, seems to be about money. Anybody notice how many brand new health insurance buildings went up in all kinds of U.S. cities all over the country when nationalized health care hit the stage? You know what I learned? In the deal of nationalized health care, insurance companies were allowed to make 20% on top of whatever their costs were. You could build a really nice building, really nice with beautiful branding. And as long as you didn't hit the 80% mark or didn't go over that 20% markup, you could do it. Building a building, a really nice one, well, that's a part of those expenses. Look, if you're upset already, great. I'll talk about that in a minute too, but you can be upset with this podcast. I, I should probably say that before you get too upset at me, my points here, as in my other podcasts, are not about politics and what side you think I'm taking. I'm not. I'm looking at a view that looks at alternatives I'm trying to add a critical thought in addition to one or the other. I'm looking here at what we might consider actual health and actual care. The current divide in our political system is similar to a marriage that many counselors, and I am one, in mental health can accurately predict is going to end in divorce. That's where the sides are, as it is now. To be even more clear, This is really about you and I, our side, and having equal, ah, there's that equal word, you know that concept that America was founded upon, if I recall correctly, equal healthcare is what this is about. That is, I'm on the side of you and me, I think. We can go back into political history and help on the sides argument if you want. Hillary tried to set up healthcare whenever Bill was in the White House. That was squelched. After that, the Clintons tried to do more. Every other president since, Republican and Democrat, has done something to give health care a go and still no success. I don't know how many more decades need to be argued over in regards to health care. Even the old, old, old nationalized plans, such as Social Security and Medicare and even Medicaid, are in the funding question mark zone 
Oh, and while I'm on the topic of Medicare and Social Security, providers who take these payments are invariably faced with an inability to comply with often contradictory policies and procedures related to procedure codes, billing, what's allowed and what's not allowed, what you can collect from a patient and what you can't collect. Hidden in policies and procedures of hundreds of pages and often call centers can't give advice either because it's deemed potentially legal. Healthcare does not belong in insurance. There's my summary. Why? Insurance companies distilled down and sorted out our banks. Banks and health insurance are driving what is called healthcare, and they're driving the healthcare industry with all the ancillary services of processors. This is rooted in profit. And to be clear, banks are key players in other areas of American life, and that's also in politics. What would a solution be? Can we at least get on to the solution? Sure. Here comes the real controversy in today's podcast. Shockingly to me, this would be a controversy, but, you know, so is having pride as a nation. Moving political money to the poor, that was a little bit controversial. And the fact that maybe all people believe in something, or the idea that good and bad could actually be harmful... I'd like to continue here with the idea of something else that maybe is controversial, at least to many of us. You and I and all providers who are in the healthcare typologies, and that is who collect and bill for payments for medical services, and you and I who are patients of the same system of care, now I've covered all of us, no matter what side you're on, could have the same health care plans as every employee in the federal government, and even better would be if we all had the exact same coverage as our senators, congressmen, and president. Now that seems principled enough, right? I mean, a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, built and founded on this un- concept of equality and inalienable rights, would of course provide equal coverage in health care, yeah? Paying for it seems to be another thing I know, which of course goes to the money, and I'll tackle that just in a moment. Do you know how much money could be saved just today if all of the processing time and processing companies and billing departments were no longer needed? Yes, I know this is going to affect jobs of people, but making money on processing claims is yet another banking behavior. When everybody's taking a cut, And when you look at some of these tiers from the top all the way down to the provider, as many as five to seven, and in one scenario, I think I found 10 different layers of parties involved in claims processing. Everyone has something to gain and to lose, I suppose. A principled argument being made is one that looks at healthcare for people, whereby 100% will need it and will have to access it at some point in life. Nobody gets out of life alive and nobody gets through life without seeing a medical doctor often in great serious crisis. So let's cut costs in a number of ways, including in the ways that affect people like me, a provider. Let's cut costs by getting rid of processing payments. Let's cut costs by getting profit out of the payer agenda. Profit out of the agenda, I said. Cut costs by getting rid of the ever-changing variables to what is covered and what is not covered and the various exceptions to this and to that. And really, let's look at cutting other costs. Cut costs by setting a standard pay for standard services using formularies across all medical conditions. 
and make these formularies identical for all people. The standard pay is deemed too low by a provider, and people like me can just get out of that business, or they can lower their rate. Many providers will accept less pay for less chaos and for less of an inability to uh, focus on improving their care. If, If they can focus more on improving care, they may accept less, of course. Working less in payer processes and working more in patient processes, that may be worth lower pay. Just ask them. Cut costs by creating standards of what is defined as medically necessary. I write about diagnosis on my website and medical necessity in other areas such as eclectic care and the LGBTQ therapy models. Look, the subjective view of what is medically necessary can be manipulated by clients and providers to be sure, so costs are hard to gauge. But for areas where medically necessary is questionable, and that would be anything outside of the standards of what is in the formulary, require second opinions and require the second opinions to be from online providers so that the referral process is blind. Remove elective benefits from all plans. Look, I like beautiful white teeth and I like Armani glasses and I hate pimples and I love hypnosis. I'm not convinced these are medically necessary. I hate tags and growing bumps and extra hair and the like. I hate seeing people who are mentally ill with few exceptions have lifelong therapy. Now, when I say people who are mentally ill having lifelong therapy, there's only a few conditions where that's actually needed. So create some of these as no longer medically necessary. Medical necessity can be limited is my point and it can be standardized for all people. Consumerism and profit in healthcare is not working. Maybe a little equality would, with some very standardized formularies in place. And as I wrap up here, let me say too, equal healthcare is a principled argument when banks are excluded from the system and when UNI's coverages are standardized and just as good from the top down, no matter if you're a president of a country, the president of a bank, the president of an insurance company, and frankly, even if you're unemployed in America. To argue that some people should not have health insurance is appalling to me. You see, when I sit across from a client who has a dying loved one at home with very little coverage and I listen to the trajectory of the illness to demise, worsened by non-health insurance at some point in the past until it was just too late, it's heart-wrenching. To me, talking about a way that American citizens can or should be non-covered is a tragedy in and of itself. The argument that some should go without, no matter those who are paying deductibles that have, in essence, no coverage, or those who absolutely have no coverage, the idea that somebody should have non-coverage and that it's justified is the tragedy. I don't know what it's like to look at a loved one and tell them, look, in America, some people don't have health insurance, and that's just how it is. Sorry about your cancer and your tumor. We could have gotten to it sooner and maybe it had been fine, but our system doesn't work that way. Good luck in the ER. I can also say this, I've watched two loved ones live with low quality insurance and it was the kind that was only granted to them in critically life-threatening and terminal illnesses. I watched them die. Their health care was not the same as those who had good health care, simply because earlier in life they didn't have any health insurance. It's idealistic probably, but this is too simple to me. I know if you've made it this far in the podcast, you have to care. So 
So I'm going to say this to you. I know you care. And if this podcast has upset you, that's only because you care. No matter what side you're on. Can we care together, maybe? This is my voice.